Thanks for joining us for today's message. We encourage you to visit southernhillslv.com to watch or listen to past messages. We hope you enjoy today's message from God's Word. Let's go ahead and get started. We're in the book of Philippians, chapter number three today, in a sermon series entitled Happy Thief. It is a study through the book of Philippians. And as we've been studying through the book of Philippians, we've been learning this main concept, that happiness, joy, is your natural inheritance from God the Father. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's one of the fruits of the Spirit. It should be naturally part of your daily life. Happy, happy. To be happy is yours, but... There are villains out there, thieves, who are attempting to steal your joy, daily take away your portion of happiness, and a lot of us are allowing that to take place because we're unaware of these villains. So what I'm doing as we study through the book of Philippians is we are exposing the 10 villains who are attempting to steal your daily joy. And today we arrive at the eighth villain. The eighth villain is entitled the forever embezzler. Say it with me. The forever embezzler. Say it again, say it again. The forever embezzler. The eighth villain doesn't want you to see the future. He attempts to blind you to the reality of what is next. You might be saying to yourself, Josh, is that a, is that a, is that a fork in your pocket? And to that question, I would say, yes, it is a fork. In my pocket. You say, why do you have a fork in your pocket? It's four days from Thanksgiving. Why do you have a fork? Because I'm ready. You know what I mean? I'm ready. Amen. <laughs> that's why. But that's not the only reason. This fork is, is part of a story I want to tell at the end of the sermon. So I'm going to temporarily put it right here. Don't let me forget it. That fork is coming up in just a moment. When my wife and I were first married, Heather and I first got married, she was from Alabama. She did not grow up in Las Vegas. Anybody here today that did not grow up in Las Vegas, but now you happen to live? Raise your hand. How many of you? A lot of us, right? I was born and raised here, so Las Vegas doesn't have the mystery that it does for outsiders. In fact, some of you have lived here long enough that the, the mystery of Las Vegas, the magic of the town kind of fades a little bit. But you have friends and family, and when they visit town, they want to go downtown where you don't want to go. They want to go to the Strip where many of you have to go every single day for work. And so Heather was no different. When she first arrived, she wanted to go see some of the things. And so we went downtown, we went to the Strip, and we went to go see a brand new show that had just started on the strip itself, outside, it was brand new when the Treasure Island first opened. How many of you are old enough to remember when the Treasure Island first opened? Raise your hand. How many of you like? There's my old folks right there. There you are. Treasure Island first opened up, and it was a big deal. They had a pirate ship out front and a pirate show that two pirate ships would come together, they would float together, and they would fight right there on the street. Now, there have been many iterations of this pirate fight. This was the less... Um, sensual one. That one came later. This was where actual pirates actually fought actual pirates, and they're swinging back and forth. It was like a Disney show on the strip, and my wife was like, man, let's go check it out. So I'm like, all right, let's go. The problem was we arrived at the strip um, a little late, and, and the show was about 20 minutes from getting started, but it was already packed. And so when we got dropped off and started walking, do you know what I'm talking about, that, that plank area? We started walking up on that boardwalk, and it was crowded. I mean, it was wall-to-wall people. How many of you remember BC? Remember before COVID? When people would, you remember, 
when people would crowd in and get all in your personal space. And, and it's wor- it was terrible. It was really crowded. And it's worse for people like me because people of my stature, <laughs> God has created us at armpit level. You know what I mean? And so when you're in that space, it's really uncomfortable, especially down here. When people are looking down at you and you're looking at their shoulders, it's bad. And so we're standing there and I'm smelling, I'm smelling the, their Vegas experience, all of it, which is more than just body odor. I'm smelling everything that everyone had been through that day. And there we were standing 20 minutes waiting. And the longer we waited, the more crowded it got. And the more people began to push in on us. When the show finally started, all I could see, because of how small I am and how tall they were, all I could see were lights and lasers and pirates swinging up here and splashing into an area I could not see, fireworks above my head, and it ended. The whole time, Heather's looking at me like, why are we here? I'm looking at her like, I have no idea. And at the end of the show... Everybody started moving in one direction. And they began moving in such a way that we could not get out of the crowd. And so we were begin to be forced in one particular way, in a way that we never had planned to go in the first place. And that was into the brand new Treasure Island. In the same way, what I find to be true in the life of many Christians that I counsel and pastor is that we allow ourselves to be so crammed in to the events of life, the realities of our existence, the people, the places, the responsibilities, the opportunities, the entertainment. All of these things crowd us in so much that they begin to block out the view of the reality of what we can see or what we could see if we were to rise above it. And so Christians, I find, have a very difficult time looking beyond their present circumstance into the reality of the future that is to come. And the villain is stealing away your joy by embezzling your view of the future. You can't see, and therefore you have no joy. You have been blinded, and therefore you have no happiness. All you can see is this in front of you. And you sit back every day and wonder why you lack daily joy. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 13, if you remember from last week, this is when the Apostle Paul said, I want you to forget the things which are behind. I want you to focus on the things which are ahead. And I want to talk to you about the things which are ahead. The problem is we can't see the things which are ahead because of all of these problems. I want you to see the big thought for the sermon today before we continue, and that is this. You have a future. The end is not the end. That's the big thought for today's sermon, so I want you to repeat it back to me. Two sentences, and both of them short, so go ahead and share them back with me. Number one, you have a future. Number two, the end is not the end. Say it with me. You have a future. The end is not the end. Say it again. You have a future. The end is not the end. Have you lost sight of the future kingdom? That's the question I want you to wrestle with today. It's something I've been working through now for the last few weeks in preparation for this moment for God to speak to you through this passage. Have you lost focus of the future kingdom? 
Well, if so, you must do three things that are found in this passage, and the first of which is found in verses 17 through 19. If you lost joy because you've lost focus on the future, the first thing you must do is you must pick the right mentors. I want you to say that with me. Say it with me. Pick the right mentors. Say it again. Say it again. Pick the right mentors. Look what the Apostle Paul says to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. He says, brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk. If you remember what he had just said in the few verses previous, which we discussed in last Sunday's sermon, the Apostle Paul said, this is what you must do. You've got to forget the things which are in your past, and you've got to focus on your future. You've got to leave your past behind, and you've got to head toward Jesus. This is, all of this is built today upon that main concept. And so then he continues by saying, if you are my brothers in Christ, if you are part of the family of God, join in following my example. I want you to follow my example as what? And note those who are, who so walk. What does this mean? It means look for those who are running the race of life well. I want to speak specifically to the young adults in this room. Listen to me. You're 18 to 30 years old. Hear me. You are surrounded in this world by a bunch of people who are running the race of life. Many of them are not running it well. And if you pattern your life and your race after their life and their race, then you're not going to run well as well. And so what we see in this scripture is this. I want you to note those who walk well as you have us for a pattern. That is, once you find somebody who's running the life of race, uh, the race of life well, mark them and follow their example. Mark them and pattern your life after them. You should be selecting people in your life that are doing well and then pattern your life after them. Surround yourself with the right mentors. And here's why. Because if you have the right people at your table, you'll never lose sight of the future kingdom. Look, it goes on in verse 18. For many walk, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, like they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Don't you understand on this pathway of life? Don't you see that on the race of life, there are many people who walk, and, and, and as they do walk this path, Paul says, I've told you before, and now I'm telling you with tears in my eyes, don't you see? They run this race like they are enemies of Christ. Here's the problem, is that there are many Christians who follow, they say they follow Christ, but they're actually patterning their life after those who hate Christ. Your pattern of life is focused and following those who don't even love your Savior. And so Paul tells the Philippians, this is a major mistake. Why pattern your life after those who hate Christ? By the, have you lived long enough to realize there are people who hate Christ? They don't know your Savior. They don't love your Savior. They turn their back on their Savior. So how do you know these people? Paul gives an example of how to know who doesn't follow Christ. Look at verse 19. It says, whose end is destruction. That is, at the end of their life, they have nothing. There is nothing there. Even if they have accumulated wealth, when they die and get in the grave, they have nothing. They have nothing. Even if you were to ask them, what happens after life? They'd say, I don't, not, nothing? They tell you 
They know or believe there's nothing after life. Well, maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe my, my soul ceases to exist, but my body, my body disintegrates and it becomes part of the metaphysical universe. From whence I once came, now I once go back to once I once was. And so in a way, in a sense, I'm part of you and you're part of me and we're all together. But me, myself, I cease to exist and therefore am nothing because I always have been nothing and am going to nothing. And these are the people that you are patterning your life after. They're enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction. It goes on. Whose God is their belly. You say, do you believe in God? And they would say, I don't believe in God. Yes, you do. You worship your belly. You worship whatever you get to eat next. You worship whatever you get to consume in your own life. You worship your house. You worship your boat. You worship your reputation. You worship your Twitter account. You worship your academia. You worship your knowledge. You worship your, uh, your entertainment. You worship you. It's not that the unbeliever doesn't have a God. It's that the unbeliever worships themselves, whose God is their belly. And that's fine. Listen to me, friend. I'm not here to preach to them. They're not here to listen. I'm not here to give them a message because they don't care what a guy like me has to say because I'm an old-fashioned Bible thumper. Instead, I'm here to talk to you. The problem is not them. The problem is that some of us are patterning our lives after them. It makes no sense. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, goes on and whose glory is their shame. You say, what do you mean glory is their shame? What they should be ashamed of, they celebrate. We live right now in a society that celebrates shameful things. They will, this society, they will attack somebody who does righteously, but they will celebrate somebody who does sin. And that's fine because that's their society. They are Corinthians. They are Romans. They are Philippians. They are Las Vegans. They are Americans. But we, my friend, are not. We are Christians. The problem is not what they're doing. The problem is that we idolize them. We're running a race here, but you should be following after mentors and coaches and life examples and disciplers who actually love Christ, whose God is not their belly, whose end is the eternal kingdom of God, who have the opportunity of moving forward in their glory in Christ, not in their shame. Look, he goes on. Let me tell you how so you can find out the wrong people who set their mind on earthly things. Their entire life, listen to me, the people that you're following, ask yourself this question. Their entire life is focused on things that will fade away. They don't even, listen, they don't even know about the real world. You realize this is not the real world. This is the false world. There is a real eternal kingdom, a spiritual realm that will have no end. But so many of us that are in this world live for the things that will one day fall away, destroyed, turn to dust, and become nothingness. Some of us, though, follow Christ, but we pattern our lives after individuals who set their mind on earthly things. This is why we have no true joy. You say, what should I do instead, Pastor? Here's what you should do. Pick the right mentors. 
This is a very practical point to a sermon, and then we'll move on. Say, what do you mean pick the right mentors, Pastor Josh? I mean develop a team of mentors and coaches in your life. Create in your own life a cabinet of mentors and coaches. I learned this principle from one of our deacons. His name is Drew Palencia. Anybody here know Drew Palencia? He's one of our deacons. Raise your hand. He's not. He's, some people know him. Even though he's a deacon, he's not well-known. He's a very quiet man. There are certain types of men. Some men, uh, every time they have a chance, they're talking, right? And you're like, please stop talking. That's like me. That's like Josh. A lot of us are like this. There are other people that rarely talk, but when they do talk, man, they pour out wisdom. Drew is one of those men in our church. And so anytime he talks, man, I want to hear what he has to say. And Drew told me years ago, he said, you know what you need, Josh? He said, what I've done in my life is develop a cabinet of advisors. I'm like, like the president? He said, exactly like the president. Like the president himself has a cabinet of mentors. Now, some of you are so politically minded, you're not going to be able to think about anything for the next 15 minutes except for politics. Can you just chill out for a moment and disengage? All right? All presidents, regardless of political affiliation, have what's called a cabinet. The president is never expected to be the guy in the room who knows everything. He is expected to be a guy who has a cabinet of people. One person knows everything about housing and development. The other person knows everything about the economy. The other person knows everything about uh, uh, internal affairs and external affairs. Other people know all about war. Other people know all about politics. are other people. They surround themselves so that they can receive counsel and make wise decisions. Why are you any different? Listen to me, my young adults in the room today. Why are you any different? Listen to me, those in their 40s and 50s and 70s, why are you any different? Why don't you develop a cabinet of mentors and coaches? I'll show you mine. This is what I developed years ago. This is my personal one. Um, I sit at the table. That's me on the left. I refer to me as me. There I am. Around this, this is my literal one that I actually follow. I don't have the names of the people, but I have the positions. To my left, I have my spiritual mentor. That is somebody that I can go to and ask spiritual advice to. See, you, you have a pastor, and so do I. This is the person that I go to for spiritual help and care and counsel and guidance. Then I have a ministry mentor. A ministry mentor would be like you have a career. I I call my career a ministry And so I I look to my ministry mentor. Many of you know my ministry mentor. His name is David Tice. He's He's my father. He's been a pastor for four decades. This is who I go to for that advice. I have a preaching coach. You say, you have a preaching coach? How do you think I got so good? You know what I mean? Like... Like, for real, like, I, I literally do. There's a guy, now, I haven't talked to him for about a year and a half now. Some of you might think, yeah, I can tell. But it's been about a year and a half. And what I do is I'll, I will pay him, because he's been a preacher for many, many years. He's now retired, and, but I want to value his time. I'll pay him to watch my sermons and then critique them. And say, you know what, Josh, you said this. I'm not thinking, I don't think it was clear. You know what, if you got to this point a little quicker, you know, that story took a little long. And when you say, what are you doing, Josh? What I'm trying to do is surround myself with wise people who are followers of Christ who can help me take next steps. Do you see what I'm saying? See, you could do this. I have a theology coach. You say, what's a theology coach? For a pastor, it's somebody making sure that whenever I preach my sermons, I'm teaching what the Bible actually teaches. I use our pastors for this. Every Sunday, before I preach to you on Sundays, I sit with my pastors and give them the sermon on Wednesday. So that the pastors like Pastor Blake and Pastor Caleb and Pastor Jason can say, you know what, Josh, I'm not sure that what you're saying here is in the Bible. Well, how about about that? That's a good idea. Make sure what I say is actually in the Bible. Amen? (laughs) You're not here to hear my opinion. You want to hear what the scripture says. 
I have a life coach. He's a member that comes to our church every single Sunday, but he has had such great life experience in areas that I have not that I meet with him on a regular basis and call him when I have major life decisions that I'm not sure what to do with. I have financial experts in my life who know about finances. I have family experts in my life who know about finances. I have an accountability partner that I personally meet with twice a month over coffee, and I look at him, and he looks at me, and he asks me questions like, are you reading your Bible every day? Are you praying every day? Are you being faithful to your wife? Are you keeping your heart pure and right with God? And I do the same for him. I have my wife sitting beside me. And she knows everything, and I know of her, and we talk and communicate. Here's the problem. Look, what I'm saying is some of us lack joy and happiness because you think you're a lone ranger doing life on your own, and you don't surround yourself with the right people. Some of us in this room lack joy because we've surrounded ourselves, but you've surrounded yourself with a bunch of people who don't know where they're going or what they're doing. And what's going to end up happening is you're going to follow their path to destruction. And in doing so, you're going to sap all the joy and happiness out of your life. And so what the Apostle Paul says, hey, Philippians, if you're going to leave behind the things which are in the past and press forward to the things which are before, you've got to surround yourself with the right people. You've got to make sure that you're following the right path by following the right people. And if you have the right people at the table, you'll never lose sight of the future kingdom. Number two. Number one, what is the first step we need to take? Number one, it is pick the right mentors. Number two, claim your citizenship. Say it with me, say it with me. Claim your citizenship. See, if you've lost sight of the future kingdom, it's because you're not claiming your citizenship on a daily basis. Say, what do you mean my citizenship, Pastor Josh? Look at what it says in verse number 20. How many Christians in the room? You a Christian? If you are, say amen. amen. Okay, all right, here's your citizenship. For our citizenship is in, what does it say? Heaven. Your citizenship is in heaven. It doesn't say your citizenship one day will be in heaven. This is what most Christians think. They think, well, I live here now, and then one day I'll live in heaven. I'm a citizen of earth now, but one day I'll live in heaven. I'm a citizen of the United States now, and one day my citizenship will be in heaven. That's not what it says. It says you are a citizen of heaven, a citizen in heaven. Your citizenship is in heaven now. I got to tell you, confession time. I absolutely love being an American. <laughs> I do. I know it's not all of us. There are a lot of people in this room that are not this, but I want to know, anybody here that is a, uh, any American citizens like I am, I was born and raised here, any American citizens, would you raise your hand? How many of you American citizens? Raise your hand real high, okay. All right, a lot of us, not all of us, a lot of us are. Some of you, by the way, were born as American citizens. Some of you value your citizenship even more because you were not born as an American citizen and you worked to become one. You love being an American. How many of you as an American, you love being an American? Can I get an amen? amen? Man, I do too, man. I bleed. If you cut me, I bleed red, white, and blue. You understand? I love this country, and I am a citizen of this country, but my loyalties to this country are subdued compared to my loyalty to my citizenship in heaven. That is my country. That is my country. Do you understand? 
That is where I hold my loyalty. I am first primarily a citizen of heaven and then secondarily I'm a citizen of the United States. When your mindset forgets this, we often forget that our joy can be full even when your society, your secondary citizenship, might be a little out of control. See, you are not a citizen of this world, my friend. You are a stranger in a strange land. And you've got to view that. Listen, you have to understand this as a Christian. I love to travel. I love, do you like to travel? Any travelers? Anybody love to travel? Raise your hand. You love to travel? For example, my friend Rom, Rom and Rachel are, are from uh, Brazil. And first thing I said to Rom when I saw him today, I'm like, Rom, when am I coming to Brazil? He said, anytime you want. How many of you would like to come to Brazil with me on a missions trip? Raise your hand. How many of you would like, wouldn't that be awesome? Go down to Brazil. Be amazing. I remember that one of the first times I was out of the country, I was on a missions trip, Rom, to, um, to a, a friend in, in India, missionary there, one of our global partners. And when I went down to India, I loved it. Man, it was amazing. It was, anybody been to India before? Amazing experience. The food is incredible. And the beauty of the people, the women everywhere you went, like you see in the movies, the, the beautiful, colorful saris that they wear, they wear them everywhere every day. And so it was like a visual feast for the eyes, the beauty, the taste buds were amazing as you ate all the food. I loved being in India for two weeks with Heather, but I gotta tell you, the moment we landed in Chicago, when we got to the ground in Chicago in the United States of America, and I came off that plane, all I could think about was kissing the ground of this country and going to buy a hamburger. Because, <laughs> do you know why? Here's why. Because I'm more comfortable where my citizenship is than I am in a foreign land. Do you know why it is a lot of Christians lack joy? It's because they're more comfortable here than they are there. You're so deeply invested in the things of this world. You're so deeply contrived into the things of this world that the fact is the world of heaven means very little to you. And so you lack joy. You lack peace. You lack love. You lack hope. See, I want you to remember this morning that you don't belong to the society of the temporary. Let me say it again. The society of the temporary. That's what this world is. Nothing done for this temporary world is lasting. Have you forgotten? Listen to wisdom, my friend. Hear what I'm saying today. Have you forgotten that careers can be decades long and then are tarnished by a simple mistake? Wealth can be built for generations and wealth vanishes. Beauty fades. Buildings are demolished. Cities crumble. Businesses collapse. And even nations will fall. And when we as humans will sit back and be honest with ourselves about the temporary nature of this society, we can become incredibly discouraged and even depressed. Everything I do, even the art that I create, it will all one day go into the dustbin of history, into the trash heap of the world. No one will remember anything we do 10,000 years from now. See, don't tell me that. That only brings you sadness if you are so invested in this kingdom because you have forgotten about the real kingdom. 
The reason why this world is so deeply sad when they think about eternity or when they think about the end of their life or they think about 5,000 years from now is because they know it's all pointless. But not for us, my friend. Because like sandcastles, they spend their entire day crafting perfection only to see the tides rise and wipe out all of their efforts. However, however, if you're a citizen of another country, if you're an ambassador of an eternal kingdom, everything you do here lasts forever. Everything you do. The job that you do, the work you do with your children, the work you do with your spouse, the availability that you have in this society, in this city, everything you do actually matters because you remember you don't serve them, you serve him. So everything as a Christian you do as an ambassador of the eternal kingdom actually matters for this world and beyond. And everything that somebody does not a part of the kingdom of God, not focused on the eternal, God, eternal kingdom, it fades away to nothingness. This is why throughout history and throughout the Bible you'll find great heroes of the faith because they were focused on the eternal kingdom, not the temporary world. Hear my voice. This is why Moses left Pharaoh's house. This is why the shepherd boy stood before the giant. This is why Esther stood before the emperor. This is why Peter left his fishing boat. This is why Matthew left his tax booth. This is why Paul left his religion. This is why Blandina marched toward the Roman arena. This is why William Tyndale marched to the burning stake. This is why Dr. King marched in Selma because they all knew this truth that what I do, I do for an eternal kingdom, not for this temporary world. When we shift our focus, suddenly joy returns to our hearts. Friend, it can for you. This is why you as a member of Southern Hills as a Las Vegan, look at, look, listen, this is why you go to work every day downtown or every day on the strip. This is why you do so because you know that they are not your boss. Christ is. You know that you're not there for a paycheck. You're there on assignment from God. You know that as you work in the ambulance industry or you work in the fields of the doctors and the nurses or you work as a police officer or you work in, as a grocery store clerk, you understand that you're not just there for a paycheck, you're there on assignment. And what you're doing is not for a temporary moment. What you do is as an ambassador of Christ, advance the eternal kingdom of God forever. It gives purpose where others have none. I believe this is true with my whole heart. If you have the right people at the table, you'll never lose sight of the future kingdom. If you daily claim your citizenship, you'll never lose sight of the future kingdom. And then number three, and we gotta close. The third thing you must do, according to the Apostle Paul in this passage, if you're going to focus on the future, knowing the end is not the end, number three, you must trust the process. I want you to say, trust the process. Trust the process. Say it again, say it again. Trust the process. Now, when I say trust the process, what I actually mean is trust 
his process. Does anybody in this room believe that God is sovereign, God knows what he's doing, God's in control? How many of you in this room would say, I believe God knows what he's doing? Say amen. Well, that, would, that makes sense, right? You're a bunch of Christians in church. We believe that God knows what he's doing, which means he has a process. He has a process about you and your future. I'm going to tell you your future. You want me to tell you your future? Theologically, here's what it is. Your future takes place in three specific steps. The first one is justification. Say justification. The second step is sanctification. Say sanctification. The third step is glorification. Say glorification. I'll briefly explain. All important to understand the final verse in the passage. Justification. The Bible says we're all sinners. Every single one of us have sinned against God. All of us have broken laws. All of us have disappointed God. All of us have lied, stolen, or cheated, or hurt somebody in the past. Is there anybody here who would like to stand and talk about how they've never made a mistake in life, not once? Anybody want to stand and talk to me about how perfect you are? Anybody? Anybody? No? Sure. No, of course not. Why? Because we all know we're sinners. The Bible says even though we're sinners, God loves us and wants to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. It's called, here's the word, justification. Say the word, justification. So at some point in your life, you come before God and say, God, you're the judge, I'm not. I know I've sinned and deserve to go to hell, but you died on the cross. You suffered hell in my place. And so I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins, and I'm asking you to save my soul. Would you make me a Christian right now? And the Bible says, through faith, you can ask Jesus to save you, and he will justify you. Here's my question. Do you remember when it was that you were justified? Do you remember when it was you got saved? Now, some might be thinking, oh, I remember, Pastor, because my grandmother told me that when I was a baby, before I can remember, there was a religious practice, and they baptized me. And so I think, was that what, okay, look, what happened to you, really cool family tradition, awesome, but that did not save you. I grew up in a very religious family, too. That didn't save you. Oh, I know what you're talking about. My question is, did you get saved? When did you get saved? I know what you're talking about, Pastor. When I was a young person, I memorized all these religious words, and I went forward, I was in a group of people, and I, I, I told them all the religious stuff. That's when I got saved? No. That, again, that really nice religious uh, family tradition. But that didn't save you. Say, then when did I get saved, Pastor? I don't know. I'm asking you. When did you get saved? See, salvation takes place in this way. When you finally understand for the first time, I'm a sinner. I really am. I'm in trouble of damnation. But God, you love me. And even though I'm a sinner, I know you love me and you want to save my soul. And Jesus, you died on the cross for me. And you were buried and you rose from the grave. And I'm asking you right now, I'm asking you, will you save my soul? Will you take me to heaven when I die? And in that moment, the Bible says God declares that you're righteous by faith. He declares that you are now saved. My question is this, when did you do that? When did you get saved? Now, some of you are thinking of a specific time in your life. Awesome. Some of you are like, I don't know. Then why don't you do that today? Why don't you come to Jesus by faith, repent, and receive Christ as your Savior today, like today? Justification. Without it, only damnation. 
Justification leads to the second word, sanctification. Sanctification is a long word, which basically means the process by which God makes you more and more perfect. God makes you more and more like Jesus. Do you remember what Paul said in verse 13 of the previous passage? He said, forget the things which are behind, press forward the things which are before, focus on Jesus. How many of you in this room, raise your hand if this is true of you. You say, man, Pastor Josh, I gotta tell you, I am not perfect, but I'm trying to be like Jesus. Anybody like that? I'm not perfect, but I'm trying to be like Jesus. Raise your hand. How many of you, I'm not perfect, but I'm trying to be like Jesus. Okay, here's where you're at. You're in the sanctification process. God is working on you. The first part is justification. The second part, sanctification. The third part is, does anybody remember what it was? Glorification. It means this. It means there's a moment at the end of your life when you stand before God, when you're dead, that God transforms your body. You are no longer partially walking through salvation. He finishes the work and gives you a new body forever without sin. That's what the scripture says in verse 21. Look what it says. Look what it says and it will be done. It says, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body? Transform our lowly body. Have you lived long enough to look at your body in the mirror and say, it is not what it once was? You know what I mean? Right? Like something's happening. It's starting to fall apart, right? And we're trying to hold it off, man. We're trying to keep it at bay. We're trying our best to not become dead. And, but the, we're heading that direction. We know we're, it's, it's happening. And so God says, don't worry, those of you who are in this kingdom process, because one day God will transform your lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. He will go, he's going to give you a new body. That body will never grow old, will never grow sick, will never sin, will never have any of these problems, and it will be perfect forever, according to the working by which he's able to do all things by himself. Say, what's the point? The point is this. Paul wants us to get out of the world of the temporary and focus on the world of eternity, that one day this tiny little thing you call life this 70, 80, maybe if you're lucky, 90 years that you live will end. And when it does, if you are part of this process, if you have been born again, you will look back on this little tiny thing you called life as that little practice time you were given. The preface to the real thing it was the trailer before the movie actually began. Don't you understand, if you're a follower of Christ, the best is yet to come. The fork. I almost forgot about the fork. Did you forget about the fork? I was ready to pray and go, and I'm like, oh, the fork. I got it. There's a young woman, tragically young to be diagnosed with a terminal illness. It shouldn't have happened. It shouldn't have happened, but death happens, and so does illness. And if he's the chess master and we're the pawn, sometimes part of God's plan. And so the pastor went over to the young woman and sat down to walk her through her funeral service that would someday soon come. 
The doctor had given her three months, and the pastor knew this would be one of his last opportunities to sit down and talk about the funeral. So they got out their paper, their pens, and their notes, and they began to walk through. The woman said, I want this song to be sung, and I'd really like the congregation to sing this hymn. And oh, pastor, can you also include this passage? And can you make sure to tell people about Jesus and that my friends and family who don't know Jesus can be saved? Pastor's taking notes and looking, yes, we'll make it beautiful. Oh, and pastor, I want this person to speak, and I want that person to speak, and oh, don't let this person speak, pastor, and all the details. Pastor wrote it all down. He prayed with the young woman, stood up, and was about to leave, when all of a sudden she said, pastor, there's one more thing, and it's going to seem odd, but it's really important to me. He said, whatever it is. He said, she said, you know that I want the service to have an open casket viewing time. Yes, that's fine. We've made all the arrangements for that. She said, well, pastor, when people come by and view me, I want you to make sure that I'm holding a fork in my hand. The woman could see that the pastor was a little bit troubled and said, whatever you want. She laughed and said, I'm sure you're wondering why the fork. He said, it did cross my mind. Why? She said, it's a very important symbol in my family. It goes back to my childhood. When I was just a child, every single Thanksgiving, we would go over to my grandmother's home for, for dinner. And Thanksgiving was a big event where all the family from all over the region would gather together. And my grandmother, if anyone knew how to put the feast together, she did. The bird was always perfect. The mashed potatoes and the gravy without lumps. The green beans in every way. The cranberries, it was awesome. But throughout the entire meal, everyone knew that the best was the apple pie. See, grandmother's apple pie was not just a normal apple pie. It was the greatest apple pie. And it always included freshly homemade ice cream a la mode. Can I get an amen for ice cream a la mode? Oh, amen. <laughs> she said, every Thanksgiving, it was inevitable, Pastor. Somebody would lean over and say, keep your fork because the best is yet to come. She said, Pastor, I'm a true believer. And I know I'm young and I know this little life is about to end, but I want everybody at my funeral to know I deeply believe that the best is yet to come. It could be possible that you have no daily joy because the villain robs you of that portion of happiness. Because he's taking away your vision of the future. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that our minds and our hearts would be focused on the future, on the eternal kingdom of heaven. I pray especially for the man or the woman in this room who has not yet been born again, who needs to believe and receive you as Savior. I pray that today they would humbly bow before you and get saved. If God has used this message to impact your life, we would love to hear from you. Please send an email to connectdesk at southernhillslv.com. If you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so at southernhillslv.com give. We are always encouraged to hear how God is using this church in Las Vegas to reach God's people around the world.